character of Nehemiah, just this individual of who he is in the Lord. Thank you for this time to get there and study out this wonderful man that you have used so mightily. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to see what you want us to learn from this, your spirit lead and guide us, and help us, Lord, to really take this and apply it to our lives. In your name, amen. Book of Nehemiah comes obviously right after the book of Ezra. We finished up Ezra last week, and it's important that it carries on this chronological order. Dustin, if you could put that slide up real quick. I just want to remind you of the slide that we've been doing a lot here with the book of Ezra to remind you of the historical context of this. Real quick, you guys have heard this because you just got done going through the book of Ezra with us. You know, the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon. They had 70 years of captivity. When that time came up, they were miraculously, by the hand of the Lord, be allowed to come back. The first group came back under Zerubbabel. And he returned with about 50,000 people, and they rebuilt the temple, or started to rebuild the temple, I should say. So that was what the first six chapters of the book of Ezra was about. Then Ezra returns later. You can see there the time frame, about 70 years later. He comes back with about 2,000 people, and his job is to spiritually get the nation back in order. And that's what we talked about last week in Ezra 9 and 10. Nehemiah comes back about 10, 15 years after Ezra, and he comes back to rebuild the walls. Now, the walls are important from a physical standpoint. That's the protection of the city. But the walls are also a picture It's a picture of Jerusalem being protected and Jerusalem getting back in order, if you will. There's a great verse in the book of Proverbs that talks about the walls in your life being strong. And when you allow your walls to crumble, you allow all type of junk to get into your personal life and to get into your marriage, to get into your walk with the Lord. So as you see these walls being built in Nehemiah, it's also a picture of us having walls in our life. Not walls to keep people out, walls to protect us spiritually from what the world is trying to throw at us and what the enemy is trying to throw at us. So it makes sense to go right into Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a little bit different than Ezra. Ezra reads like a business report. Nehemiah is in the first person. So you're reading this from Nehemiah's perspective. And it's a fascinating look into this man. I love this man. This man, when it comes to a picture of leadership, a man that is given a task by God that seems insurmountable, but through the Lord he can do it. And if you are here tonight and you are facing something that looks huge in your life and it looks like it cannot be overcome, Nehemiah is the book for you. Because God is saying, let's rebuild these walls in your life, and let's see what happens. So that's the background of Nehemiah, about 15 years after Ezra, about 100 years after Ezra, verses 1 through 6. If you remember correctly in our study in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 4, they met such opposition, they quit rebuilding the walls. So the walls have just sat there, not being rebuilt for about 100 years. So let's pick it up here, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, if you're like me, you see those words in verses 1 and 2, and you just kind of start to shut down. Now, these words are important. It's in the month of Chislev, that's November or December. If God is giving you a date in the Bible... Pay attention to that. Because that generally means later on he wants to remind you of that. So keep in the back of your mind, this is November, December. It's in the 20th year of the reign. So we know exactly what year we're dealing with here. And he's in Shushan, the citadel. Shushan was the winter retreat for the Persian kings. He's about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. 
So here he is in the winter retreat with the king. It's November, December. He's about 800 miles away. And one of his brethren, Hananiah, comes in verse 2. And he says, hey, how are things going in Judah? How are things going back in Jerusalem? Verse 3. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Things are completely falling apart. The city's in bad shape. The wall's in bad shape. The people are struggling. Verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want you to stop right there. First thing you see Nehemiah do, and this is what I love about this guy, when he's faced with the problem, the first thing he does is pray. Now, that, that is such a simple point. We have lost that in society today. When I am faced with the problem, what's the first thing I do? Do I pray? Do I take it to the Lord? Or do I feel like I need to contact somebody first? Do I need to contact my spouse and run it by them? I love my wife. Dawn is amazing, but she did not die on the cross for my sins. Do I want to take it to Rich? Rich is amazing. I don't love him as much as Dawn. But he didn't die on the cross for my sins either. Rich is not full of unsearchable wisdom. Neither is my wife. But the Lord is. Why don't I take it to him? I don't need to do anything. Not that I have Facebook. I don't need to post anything online about my situation or my problems. I don't. I need to take it to the Lord. And I need to take it to the Lord. And I need to take it to the Lord right away. And not only do I take it to the Lord in prayer, verse 4, I take it to the Lord in prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Does this mean it's wrong to contact your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, could you pray for this? Nope, that is biblical. Here, keep a simple mindset. If the Bible emphasizes it, then how about you emphasize it in your life? So if the Bible says prayer and fasting is important, then how about we make prayer and fasting important? So often people contact me, and they're faced with a situation, and they don't know what to do, and they're overwhelmed. How about we just pray and fast? But we feel like we have to do something. i got to get out there. You are doing something. You're praying and fasting. That's the most important thing you can do. But this situation is so big, it's so overwhelming. If we don't do something right now, stay with me in Nehemiah, and please just jump ahead to verse 1 of chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Nisan is now in the spring. Four months later, God opened a door. Nehemiah, for four months, spent time in prayer and fasting. I remember, and I've shared this story with you before, is when I first took over out here, probably close to 20 years ago, situation popped up, it was a ministry opportunity, and we needed to make a decision right then. Right then we had to make a decision. And it looked like a good idea, but we didn't know for sure. And I remember I contacted a couple other people out here on the board, and I said, what do you think? And there was a lot of wisdom, and one of them said, I've never forgotten this, you know, if we feel rushed with it, it's probably not of the Lord. Because God's never in a hurry. Now, the world wants you to be in a hurry. We've been talking about this on Sundays, and I hope Sunday lesson is sinking in with you. The idea of be still and know that I am God. Slowing down, dare I say stopping, sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying, I don't have to keep up with the world. Dawn and I do foster care. You guys know that. One of the things of foster care is this, is that when they have a placement they think is good for you, they call you. So they call you and they say, this is so-and-so, and we have a placement, and they'll just give you the bare facts. It's three girls. Here are their ages. Here's what's going on. And you have to make a decision right then. 
Dawn can't say, hey, let me go talk to my husband first. We can't say, give us a day to pray about this. We'll get back to you. You have to make a decision right then. This is why Dawn and I are in constant what I call preparation prayer. Because we know a phone call is coming. So let's be prepared for it. What Nehemiah is going to do here for four months is he's going to pray for an opportunity to talk to the king. He doesn't know when it's going to happen, but he has four months of preparation prayer. Listen, you know, you know things are going to pop up. You know there's going to be a bad day at work one time. You know there's going to be a situation with a family member that's going to pop up. You know there's going to be a situation with this or that. You know it's coming. Why not be in prayer and fasting and preparation for what you know is going to happen? Remember when Jesus talked to his disciples and the parent came and said, I tried to ask your disciples to cast out the demon and they couldn't cast out the demon. And then Jesus went and cast out the demon. And the disciples come to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast out the demon when you could cast out the demon? And Jesus said, this demon only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, what were the disciples supposed to do? Was that mom supposed to come up and say, hey, my kid has a demon. Could you cast it out? And the disciples are supposed to say, hey, come back tomorrow so that way we can pray and fast over a couple meals today. No, what Jesus is trying to say is you're always in prayer and fasting on a regular basis for things coming up that you don't even know for sure when it's going to happen. But it's in preparation. We have to reach a point as a body, as a group of Christians, when we realize the Bible emphasizes preparation prayer. Prayer and fasting of being ready for what's going to happen. And so therefore, I'm going to be still, take a step back and say, Lord, I don't even know when it's going to happen, but I'm already going to start preparing myself now spiritually because I'm not going to go with the pace of the world. I'm going to be still and know that you are God and slow down and just seek you. That's what we see here with Nehemiah. Instead of rushing to the king, instead of saying we got to do something now, Nehemiah says, I need to pray. What a great point that is. And how does he pray? Look at this wonderful prayer. Verse 5, he starts out with worship. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Worship. When Jesus taught us how to pray, the model prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He started out with worship. What a great point of prayer is to start out with worship. Now, I don't know about you. I don't do that as much as I should. Because when I look at prayer, I look at me just giving my request to God. And so I just jump right to what I need. The Bible is constantly teaching me, start prayer out with worship. There's an awful situation going on in your life. It's awful. It's horrible. God says glory and tribulations. This is an awful situation that's happening here. Jerusalem is falling apart. And so what does Nehemiah start out with? Worship. So maybe things are falling apart in your life. Okay, I'm going to start out with worship and prayer. Lord, you're amazing. You're merciful. You're graceful. Lord, you give grace to me. I have a home in heaven waiting for me. Your blood covers my sin. Lord, you have blessed me with the Holy Spirit. Just worship. I tell you, when you get your mind on worship, all of a sudden everything else starts to fall into place. Because you realize it's not about you. It never is about you. It's about Jesus. And when you make it about you, it becomes selfish. And all of a sudden, you get easily offended and bothered. And people aren't talking about me enough. They're not giving me enough attention. And this person doesn't treat me nice enough. Wait a second. I'm supposed to be pointing people towards Jesus Christ. It's not about me. So therefore, I start out with worship. And then after worship, what do I do? 
Verse 6. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. The next thing he wants to address is sin. He hasn't even got to asking for anything yet. Can you imagine if you would change your prayer life around? To My first point of prayer is going to be, Lord, I want to worship you. And my next point of prayer is, Lord, I'm going to confess where I'm wrong. Rather than praying for my list of people, I know that they're wrong. And praying for them to change and their heart to change. Remember what prayer does. Prayer is you talking to the Lord. And really what's happening is the Lord is changing your heart. Your heart. That's why in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. What are you praying for? For them to die, disappear? No. You're supposed to pray for them. Because as you pray for your enemies, all of a sudden, you see them through the eyes of Christ. Jesus died for them. He died for them. He loves them with a love that he loves you with. And just as God puts up with you, he puts up with them. And so when we have this moment of worship and then this moment of confession, it gets us back to where we're supposed to be spiritually. Because if you're like me, sometimes I get into my prayer request and I start telling God what to do. Lord, you need to do something now. You need to move. No, Lord, what you need to do is be worshipped. Lord, what you need to do is hear my confession of sin. And then what do I start praying? Look at verses 8 and 9. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You might not catch that. He just prayed Leviticus, and he just prayed Deuteronomy. He was praying Scripture, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy. That is something I've really started to adapt into my prayer life, is I pray scriptures for people. God's word doesn't return void. See, what happens is when I pray, I'm trying to think of the best way to handle the situation. God has already determined the best way to handle the situation in his word. So now all of a sudden, I'm just giving the Lord scripture. I'm just reminding him of the faithfulness of his word. And as I pray... You don't have to worry about the eloquence of what you're saying. You don't have to worry about the right words. You find the scripture that deals with it and you give it to the Lord. And you remind the Lord, this is what your word says. And then as you do this, verse 10, Now these are your servants, your people, you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. And now, finally, in verse 11, he actually asks for something. Oh Lord, I pray. Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king cup's bearer. He finally says, Lord, will you give me mercy in dealing with the king in this situation? But this is after he had a time of worship, confession, prayed scriptures, then he finally asked for something. Now, honest truth of this is, if you really want to do this, emphasize what the Bible emphasizes, you have to realize prayer takes time, prayer takes energy, prayer takes attention and focus. We just finished up Colossians in our small group studies, and what Paul was saying in Colossians is continue earnestly in prayer. Be watchful. The word watchful literally means don't fall asleep. 
It says redeem the time in Colossians. And it's a really interesting Greek word. Redeem the time means that you have bought in time and you are going to redeem it. You're going to use the time God gave you. You've heard me be saying a lot out here. Let's be done saying how busy we are. We're all busy. We have 24 hours in the day, and it's plenty of time to say, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm a bond servant. Why am I talking about what I want to do today when it's really your day? So, Lord, I have time to have a time of worship and prayer, confession and prayer, praying scripture, and then I can also have time to ask you. You are never too busy for prayer. And if you are, there's something in your life that needs to go. Because what you see here with Nehemiah is a man who stopped, fasted, prayed, gave it over to the Lord. A couple quick concluding thoughts on this before we move on. If you are having a situation that your world is falling apart and the walls have fallen down in your life, look at Nehemiah. Prayer, fasting, worship, confession, scripture. Then seek the Lord and what he wants you to do. If you know somebody whose world is falling apart, start praying and fasting for them immediately. This is what the Bible emphasizes. And if the Bible emphasizes this, we should emphasize this in our own life. We have the time. We just don't take the time to do it. Now, that's Nehemiah chapter 1. Any quick questions, comments? Yes, Megan. How do you remind yourself to pray? There, there are many different ways. Um, you can take a phone and set an alarm that reminds you to pray at a certain time. You can make a list that you keep beside your bed. I have a prayer list. Dawn and I have a prayer list together. And it reminds us what we're supposed to pray over. My mind is not good enough to remember. I, I've shared with you before. I carry this with me. If somebody asks me tonight, hey, could you pray for? I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to write it down. And then when I get home tonight, I'm going to look over what I've written down and say, hey, I told this person I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray for him right now. At the moment, I may just say, let's pray right here, right now. So how do you remind yourself to pray? You can be very, um, and I mean this almost in a good way, you can be legalistic, set an alarm. I'm going to pray. You can have a prayer list. You could pray at that moment. You can pray at that time. We have to see the importance of prayer. Prayer changes more things than what we can ever imagine. But yet, for some reason, there's an egotistical pride in us that says, I, I can fix this, rather than just hitting my knees and letting the Lord do it. Or we give this quick little prayer, Lord, take care of it, and then I'm going to devote all my time, energy, and effort. Oh, man. There's more accomplished through just hitting your knees and fasting and letting the Lord lead. And then when God opens a door, you take it. And that's what you're going to see here in Nehemiah 2. Anybody else have anything about prayer, or fasting, whatever? Megan, again. Okay. Um, the other one was about fasting. Mm-hmm. Nehemiah fasted Well, he fasted parts of four months. I don't think he fasted the entire four months. That'd be pretty impressive. How would you... Maybe he missed breakfast every day. Maybe he missed lunch every day. Maybe he missed supper every day. You know? I, I know people that fast one day a week. And they set that aside for their kids. I know people that will, uh, you know, skip a meal on a somewhat regular basis. You know, when it says that they fasted for months, it does not mean that they did not eat. It means that they would stop and maybe miss meals, etc. And, and I'm just, hypothetically, I don't know. Maybe he didn't eat lunch for a few months. And he just would fast over lunch every single day. Yeah, but he didn't go four months without eating. Okay. Jesus went 40 days. Yeah, so. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? 
Okay, so now you're fasted up, you prayed up, you've sought the Lord, and guess what happens? God opens a door. That's what he prayed for. It took four months. Chapter 2, verse 1, it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Once again, we're now back in the spring, four months later. In the 20th year, same year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Now, go back to verse 11. He's the cupbearer. Cupbearer is a very interesting position. You had constant access to the king. You were a line of security. You would eat the food and drink the wine before the king would. And if you died, guess what? The king wouldn't eat it. So you are a line of security. You also became a friend to the king. It was not uncommon for the cupbearer to have a relationship with the king where maybe even over time the king would stop and say, What do you think? And you also were a servant to the king. Whatever the king needed, you were there. Now, you weren't allowed to be sad in his presence. Why? Because you are near the king. You are a line of security. Can you imagine bringing food into the king and you've got this down face? King's probably going to say, what's going on? Is this poisoned? Or is this something going to happen? So he's never been sad. But he is so overwhelmed with the situation that he can't hide it. Verse 2, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. I love the book of Nehemiah because there's an honesty. Verse 2, I became dreadfully afraid. I'm scared. And said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? He says, king, how can I be happy? Jerusalem's falling apart. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what do you request? Verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, I love verse 4. If the only thing you get out of tonight is verse 4, I'm okay with that. Always seek the Lord before you speak. If somebody calls me, and as I'm answering the phone and said, Hey, James, i got a quick question for you. I, in my mind, just quietly say, Lord, wisdom. Because I don't know what they're going to ask. If someone comes up to me after church and says, Hey, do you got a second? I say, sure. But in my mind, I'm saying, Lord, wisdom. I'm just praying a quick little prayer. Lord, wisdom. Now, I'm also hopefully prayed up, like we see here in chapter 1, of being in prayer and fasting and just being prepared. But when the moment actually comes, verse 4, Nehemiah prays real quick, right then and there. I absolutely love that. Please remember this. And I'm not trying to be insulting to you because I'm insulting myself as I say this. Who are we to answer anything? Who are we to come up with a good idea? Who are we to have wisdom apart from the Lord? The more I read Genesis through Revelation, the more I realize I am really nothing and just a bondservant and absolutely everything I need to do goes through the lens of God. And why would I even want an original thought? I just want to represent Jesus in Scripture. So therefore, they ask a question, verse 4. I'm already praying, saying, Lord, what do you want me to say? Because I got opinions. But my opinions may not be of the Lord. So, Lord, I want to represent Scripture. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, what do you think? Your job is to give them Jesus and Scripture. I see so often in churches people seeking advice from other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And those brothers and sisters are not giving them prayed over opinions. When I send out emails to the board out here and we got a situation going on, I'll end the email with, does anybody have any prayed over thoughts or prayed over opinions? I don't want your thoughts and I don't want your opinions. I will take prayed over thoughts. I'll take prayed over opinions. But if it's just something that came to mind and you haven't cleared it through scriptures or Jesus, you just keep that one to yourself for a while. But when you've cleared it with the Lord, I would love to hear what you have to say. 
But how often as Christians are we giving out our wisdom, our intellect, our thoughts, and we have not run it through the lens of Jesus in Scripture? So we have to pray over it, seek the Lord, because be careful. When you're giving advice to somebody, you're representing the counsel of God. So make sure it lines up biblically. Make sure it lines up scripturally. So Nehemiah does a quick prayer. And look at what he does. He just goes with it. Verse 5. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. What a request. Hey, just to remind you, I'm a conquered slave that is your servant. you care if I get some time off to go to Judah? Because what I want to do is I want to go to Judah and I want to rebuild the city that has been conquered by Babylon. What a request. How could he make a request like that? Because he has spent four months in prayer and fasting to get to this point spiritually, to know what the Lord wants him to do. Then the king said to me, verse 6, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, he said to the king, hey, I'm going to roll with this. If God's opened a door, why am I stopping? If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. Hey, can I get some official correspondence for you? Because that way when the Jewish slave is walking back to Judah, I can actually have some paperwork that says I'm allowed to do this. Oh, and by the way, verse 8, can I get a letter to the keeper of the king's force? Can I have timber and wood to rebuild the temple, the city wall, and a house? And the king gave it all to me. Why did the king give it to him? Look at verse 7. According to the good hand of my God upon me. It was not because of Nehemiah's charismatic personality. It was not because of Nehemiah's wisdom. It was not because of Nehemiah's words. It was because the Lord ordained this. Always remember that. If something happens in your life and the doors open, it's because of God's good hand upon you. We have not earned it, nor do we deserve it. We like to think we have. We haven't. And do you realize how freeing it is? Wow, Lord, I, I don't deserve any of this. But I, I hear people say me, tell me all the time what they deserve. I've worked really hard all my life. I deserve. What do you deserve? You know what? I've put up with so much stuff. I finally deserve. What? According to the Bible in Romans 3, we deserve hell. It's by God's grace and mercy we have anything. We're just a walking picture of grace and mercy. And when we stop and really realize that, all of a sudden I look at people differently because I used to get really frustrated with them. I'm frustrated with that. Now I realize, you know what? They're a sinner just like me. They're really making bad choices. And it's just God's good hand upon me. I haven't done anything to deserve this or earn this. Nehemiah says, hey, I got everything I asked for. I get an army escort, I get the wood, I get the timber, I get the letters, I get the permission, I get time off. God's good hand to be upon me. Verse 9, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now verse 9 is one of those verses you have a tendency to skip over. But remember, we just went through Ezra. Remember when God sent, excuse me, when the king sent Ezra back to Jerusalem, Ezra said, I don't want an army escort. Because why? Because if I take an army escort, it makes it look like I'm saying I don't have faith in God. But yet in the book of Ezra, Ezra says, I'm really kind of scared about this. I should have taken the army escort with me because I'm taking literally millions of dollars of gold and silver. Fifteen years later, Nehemiah says, I'm taking the army escort with me. 
Now, why was one told no and the other one told yes? God will work differently in nearly identical situations. Use the example of parting water. Moses is ready to part the Red Sea. What does Moses do? You remember Charlton Heston. He stands up. He looks really good. He raises his arm. And next thing you know, the Red Sea just parts. Now, one book later in the book of Joshua, Joshua needs to cross the Jordan River. Jordan River is at flood stage. It's huge. God says, I'll part the river as soon as what? The priest's foot hits the water. Now, to me, that shows two completely different ways of handling a nearly identical situation. That one time the Lord says, I am opening up the doors for you so wide, you just walk through it. The other time the Lord is saying, in faith, you got to get your feet wet. If you're the person that has to have everything planned out before you, before you take a step of faith, God's probably going to have you go the Joshua route. you got to get your feet wet first. If you're the other type of personality that just says, let's go with it, God says, let's just open the water and go. It's very identical, but completely different. So just be careful. Just be careful that there's not a situation that the Lord has taken care of in the past for you. And a very similar situation comes up and you reach this point of almost, I've been down this path before. I know what the Lord wants to do. I've seen it before. He may want to do it a completely different way to teach you a deeper lesson. And so what do we see here with Nehemiah? Take the army escort. Fifteen years earlier, Ezra didn't. Neither one's right, neither one's wrong. And just be careful, because if you're a put-your-foot-in-the-water-then-the-water-parts person, and you see the other person standing near the Red Sea, you can't tell them how to do it. Both are biblical. If the Lord led you a certain way, then you've got to be obedient to that. You let the Lord lead you, you let the Lord lead them. Verse 10, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed. That a man to Kim seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Sanballat and Tobiah are going to be the bad guys of the book of Nehemiah. One is a descendant of the Ammonites, and the other one is a Horonite, which is a descendant of the Moabites. And if you remember the Moabites and the Ammonites, these were descendants of Lot. They come out of Lot's incestual relationship, drunken night with his two daughters. And so Moab and Ammon have always been a problem to Israel, and there's still a problem here now, and these are the bad guys for the rest of the book of Nehemiah. Please do note, verse 10, anytime God wants to do something, the enemy will raise up opposition. He will raise up opposition. I was talking to a friend one time, and they were doing a new ministry in a new area. And he was talking about this individual that started coming to the ministry, and this individual was just a problem, a major problem. And it was frustrating. And I remember telling the individual, Amen. Do you realize if the enemy thought enough good was happening that he had to send somebody to annoy you? You must be right where God wants you. I've heard a pastor say many times before, if you are not facing any type of persecution, if you're not facing any type of opposition from the enemy, are you just not a threat? Think about that for a second. Maybe you're not a threat. So the enemy says, I don't have to worry about you. But when the Lord wants to move and work and you find yourself being persecuted, you find opposition, that may be exactly where God wants you. Because you're doing something for the kingdom right there. So now, that takes us halfway through chapter 2. The rest of this goes pretty quickly here. But any quick questions, comments about Nehemiah's conversation with the king and about the Lord's, op- excuse me, the Lord's blessing of him uh, getting the materials he needs to go to Jerusalem? Okay. All right. Hey, let's finish this up. Verse 11, so now I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Remember, when it says I came to Jerusalem, it was about an 800-mile journey. Verse 12, then I rose in the night 
I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one in which I rode. So no one really knows what the plan is. Nehemiah does. But maybe no one else really knows. I had a pastor friend tell me one time, he goes, if the Lord has laid something on your heart, he says, keep it close to you. Keep it close. Don't be so quick to go out and tell everybody, hey, the other day I was praying and the Lord showed me this. Wait till the Lord finalizes the vision. Wait till the Lord gives you that full confirmation. Because sometimes we have a tendency just to start talking. And the Lord says, wait a second, keep this one between you and me. And if you've ever noticed, if you have something the Lord's really laid on your heart and you're really passionate about it, and you go share it with other people, and the response you get is crickets chirping, it's very dis- discouraging. And I've noticed that certain times the Lord has laid something on my heart, and I've gone to people out here at church and said, aren't you excited? Look what the Lord's going to do. And they're like, nah, I don't see it. And then I walk away saying, well, then what did I do wrong? And the Lord's like, you know what? This is between you and me here for a while. Just keep this one between you and me, and in time... It's ready to come out to everybody. So Nehemiah hasn't said anything yet. Maybe there's something you're praying about right now. Just keep praying about it. You don't need to know what everybody's opinion is on it. It's between you and the Lord. Now, when you're ready to move on it, I would suggest getting some good godly wisdom from people you trust and make sure that wisdom, once again, is biblical. Make sure that wisdom is spirit-led. Make sure that wisdom glorifies Jesus. But for right now, maybe it's just a time of prayer. So verse 13, I went out by night to the valley gate, to the serpent well and the refuge gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up by night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. That word for viewed is really interesting. It's a really interesting Hebrew word. It literally means examined. So you get this picture of him examining it, but it means more than examine. It means to hope for. It means to wait for. What this word really is meaning, it's a picture of somebody looking and planning and a vision and saying, Lord, what do you want? It's not just what needs to be done. There's a deeper vision going on. There's a deeper plan going on. Now, we are really good at seeing a problem and saying, Lord, let's fix it. That's not what this word is saying. This word is saying is, what's the deeper purpose? What's the deeper vision? And I'm going to tell you, I ask people this, and and, and sometimes they don't even know how to respond. And I ask this a lot of times in marriage counseling. When I used to do marriage counseling years ago, I, I realized how much time was spent in just nitpicky little things. Well, let's get him to pick up his socks more. Let's get him to bring home flowers every now and then. Let's get her not to nag so much. Let's get her to do this. And then basically you just kind of put putting these little band-aids on marriages. And I started realizing the last couple of years, it's like, wait a second. It's not about band-aids on marriages. It's about two people focused on Jesus Christ that want to see eternity changed. That's why the Lord brought them together. That's what the Bible says. Once again, let's emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. So therefore, I started realizing recently with marriage counseling, it's, wait a second. I'm supposed to be encouraging these couples to grow in Christ. And as they grow in Christ, then their eyes are on Jesus. And it's not about, well, you said this, well, you did this. No, it's about how can we further the kingdom together? Because that is all that matters. So one of the questions I like to ask the man is, what is your vision for your marriage? And I'm going to be honest, I don't mean this to pick. A lot of guys go, I I don't even know how to answer that. Or if I talk to an individual just as a Christian, and they're kind of bumbling and stumbling through life. 
What is the vision God gave you? I don't know. I guess just get up, go to work tomorrow, come home, do it again the next day. I mean, I, I see people make huge life decisions without seeking the Lord. They plan their college degree. They plan their job. They plan where they're going to live. They plan when they're going to retire. They plan what they're going to do when they're going to retire without even stopping and thinking, what's the vision God has given me to further the kingdom and to glorify him? For us to really do that, that means you've got to die to yourself, deny your passions, disappear, and say it's all about Jesus Christ goes back to what we've been talking about here for weeks and months. So Nehemiah says, what's the vision? And I encourage you men here tonight, if you're the leader of your home, what's the vision for your home? Your vision is not just to make sure the bills are paid. Your vision is not just to make sure your kids reach 18. Your vision is not just to finish up this week and get done with school because I got a three-day weekend. No, that's not your vision. Your vision is of the Lord. You know, and just anybody, as individuals, as men, women, whatever, what's your vision? Remember what Proverbs says, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. If you're a note taker, write it down, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. Where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. Marriages perish when there's no vision. Individual walks with Christ perish when there's no vision. Churches perish where there's no vision. Lives perish where there's no vision because we think it's just about us. Nehemiah is coming and viewing and looking and saying, there's something deeper here. What's the deeper purpose? So as he is doing this now, he starts collecting this vision. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the others who did the work. I haven't said anything. He's quietly, privately collecting this vision. Now he has it. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Note how this works. Excuse me. Nehemiah privately seeks the Lord. Nehemiah examines. Nehemiah gets the vision. And then in verse 17, he presents the vision. And he presents the vision as a team effort. Verse 17. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. My kids clean better when I clean along beside them. The church works better when we work along beside each other. If somebody just wants to sit and kind of pontificate on what to do, it will never be as effective as all of us getting together and saying, we are going to work at this together. So we see Fred over there backsliding in the Lord. Then we're going to get together and we're going to pray for him as a body of Christ. We've completely lost Sally. I don't even know where she went. Then the ladies are going to get together and pray for her. Come, let us get together and do this. Verse 18, and now he finally tells them, And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me, and also the king's word that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to do this good work. He gets the vision. He presents the vision. The Lord blesses the vision. And then they work at the vision. That's the way it's supposed to be. But the only way this works is when you're willing to take the time, energy, and effort to be still, seek the Lord, fast, pray, do it. Then all of a sudden you can get a vision for your life, a vision for your family, a vision for your marriage, a vision for the church, a vision for the ministry. You can get it. What's going to happen when the Lord's moving? Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us. 
and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing where you rebel against the king? Boy, people, just, just understand this. When you want to go deeper in the Lord, you will be despised and laughed at. You will. And probably by people that you didn't think would do it. There's been times out here where I thought we had a vision from the Lord. It's like, Lord, this is what you called us to do. And I go and present it to people and I thought, I, they're going to get behind it. And like they're against it. It's like, Lord, what's going on here? Sometimes it surprises me, the opposition that we can run into. Because to be quite honest, what happens a lot of times as Christians is, hey, just don't rock the boat. Keep everything going easy and comfortable. But sometimes the Lord wants to take you a direction that's not exactly where you thought you wanted to go. And there's going to be opposition. You're going to be despised. You're going to be laughed at. Verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Every time through the book of Nehemiah that Sambalat and Tobiah come and try to, to get Nehemiah down, Nehemiah's response is always short, simple, to the point. I'm doing the Lord's work. Get out of my way. You don't need to sit there and have this long debate discussion. You don't need to sit there and prove your point. I don't know how much time we waste as Christians trying to defend ourselves and prove our point. Good golly, we have God's word on our side. We know the truth. Don't waste your time getting into these senseless conversations with people that the enemy has brought into your life just to distract you, to dissuade you, and despise you. You've got a mission from the Lord. Complete it, fulfill it, and keep moving forward. Don't let these things discourage you. So what you see here in Nehemiah, a man that God raised up to do a mighty work. Now, final thoughts. He's a man of prayer. And not just, Lord, will you, a man of prayer, of worship, of confession, of scripture. He was a man of boldness that when God opened a door, he was willing to go. So when the king says, what do you want? Nehemiah took it and went with it. He was a man of faith. He packed up. And moved 800 miles away from the comfort of the king's palace to a broken down city. He was a man of vision that went out at night and said, I want to do what the Lord has called me to do. Now, look at those things. A man of prayer, a man of boldness, a man of faith, and a man of vision. Those are the things that we're looking for today. Those are the things the Lord's looking for. Can we be these Nehemiahs? And you're going to see this as we go through the rest of this book. Nehemiah is a wonderful man of God, and we can learn a lot from him. Any final questions, comments about anything here in the book of Nehemiah before we close up in prayer? All right. Could you pray or stand with me so we can pray? Lord... We thank you and praise you for the evening to come together here. And I thank you for the people that were willing to give up a Wednesday evening after a long day to come and just worship and hear your word. Lord, I pray that we can be people of prayer. That when the problems hit, we battle back in prayer and fasting. We can be people of boldness. That when you open a door, we go with it. We can be people of faith, willing to take those steps that do not make sense. We can be people of vision that are truly seeking you. Lord, if there's someone here tonight where the walls are falling down in their life personally, that they would respond like Nehemiah, giving it to you. If we know somebody whose walls are falling down, that we would respond like Nehemiah and give them to you. And when you open a door, we respond. Lord, help us to be still. Help us to be patient. Help us to seek you and all that we say and all that we do. And we lift this up in your name. Amen.
hey, I'm going to be up here to pray. I just want to encourage you. If you are in a spot in your life where the walls are falling down, you know somebody, let's, let's pray. Let's do exactly what Nehemiah said. You guys have a good week. God bless, and we'll catch you next week then.